Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be bringing you part one of the case of Lisa Knafel in Willoughby Hills, Ohio. Let's get right to it. According to the city website, Willoughby Hills is a suburb of Cleveland that is considered one of the most picturesque communities in northeastern Ohio. With the motto of where the city meets the country, the city strives to preserve a rural atmosphere while still meeting the needs of a growing suburban community. It's known as a great place to settle down and raise a family. In 2011, the Knafel family was living in a nice home in the suburbs at 2518 Chagrin Drive in Willoughby Hills. The father, Kevin Knafel, worked as a truck driver for Gordon Foods, a bus driver for the Willoughby Eastlake School System, and an EMT. Mom Lisa was a social worker who really wanted to make a difference in the lives of abused children. Lisa worked with some of the most traumatized children of all in a sex abuse unit. Lisa's co-worker, Mike Bachmiller, spoke to the Cleveland scene about the complexity of working in that department, saying that they dealt a lot with incest cases, working both with victims and offenders. It takes a special kind of person to be able to work not only with victims, but also perpetrators. And according to Mike, Lisa was that person. He said, she specifically was incredibly compassionate. I would say we all should be at our job, but the reality is not all of us are. You've got to be real quick on your toes because you're not going to get a lot of truth or cooperation out of people who will not protect their kids or out of people who are abusing their kids. Lisa had been working with that specific unit for over a decade. And according to Dateline, she was so devoted to her job, she had taken in foster children, even as a single parent, after her first marriage failed and before she met Kevin. You see, by 2011, Lisa and Kevin had been married for roughly five years. However, this wasn't the first marriage for either of them, and they both came into the relationship with one child each, for Kevin, a son, and Lisa, a daughter. And though this wasn't their first merry-go-round, friends and family recalled to Dateline that when Kevin and Lisa met, sparks flew. He fit right in with her friends, and she was just as dedicated a mom as he was a dad. They were the perfect match, and they seemed to realize it, wasting no time making their relationship official. Just about a year after they met, they were married in 2006. By 2008, they had moved into their home on Chagrin Drive, and not long after that, Lisa was pregnant with a little girl they named Haley. It seemed the Knafel family was living the proverbial dream, so it made sense when they invited 16-year-old Sabrina Zunich into their home to share in that dream. Sabrina's life had been a far cry from the idyllic family home of the Knafels. She'd been tossed around from pillar to post since she was a toddler. 
According to the Cleveland scene, Sabrina Zunich was born on October 27, 1994, to Mark Zunich and Susan Edwards, both of whom heavily abused drugs and alcohol. Her biological mother had served prison time for grand theft after she scammed the Cuyahoga County Welfare Department out of $2,000. After she served her time for that charge, she was later arrested in 1990 after she furnished drugs to a group of 14- and 15-year-olds. Sabrina's biological father, Mark Zunich, had been arrested multiple times for DUI and disorderly conduct. All of these charges had been filed before Sabrina was born, and things certainly didn't improve after. In fact, according to Sabrina, when she was still young enough to take a bottle, her parents would mix vodka into her milk to make her fall asleep. Sabrina's biological parents had a tumultuous relationship. Mark had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and at times would stop taking his medication, which sometimes led to violent outbursts. When Sabrina was just 16 months old, her father was arrested on domestic violence charges involving her mother. Her parents never actually lived under the same roof and Sabrina's father lived with his mother. Sabrina was eventually removed from the custody of her parents and placed into the care of her grandmother. But that didn't stop her from witnessing her parents' substance abuse and violence, since her father still bounced in and out of the home. A neighbor recalled to the Cleveland scene that the police were at the house a lot and that Mark Zunich was always drunk. According to a 2006 police report and another domestic violence incident, Mark accused Susan of stealing money. As he was yelling at her about the money, he grabbed her hair and pulled a large amount of hair out of her head. When the cops arrived, Mark was still screaming at Susan, telling her to leave and to never come back. Mark then told the officer that Susan and her friends were, quote, murderers for hire. Other incident reports include a 2007 arrest for shattering a glass door of Lino's Tavern and then screaming at the responding officers. In 2010, Mark was arrested again for drunk driving after neighbors witnessed Zunich driving with two flat tires across three yards on one side of the street and another yard on the other. When officers arrived, he didn't remember driving or know why the police had been called. In another incident, he was arrested after he attempted to tear down street signs while heavily intoxicated. According to court documents, Sabrina lived with her grandmother until she was a young teen, which is when her behavior issues really started. Sabrina began acting out, her grades slipped in school, and she was lying and stealing money from her grandparents. Her grandmother was getting up there in age and unable to properly care for an unruly teen. So she made the difficult decision of having her granddaughter removed from her home. With nowhere else to go, Sabrina entered the foster care system. Child welfare officials struggled to find a suitable placement for Sabrina, due in part to her mental health and anger issues. According to friends and acquaintances at Wycliffe High School, Sabrina was known for getting into fights. One of these acquaintances spoke to the Cleveland scene and said, I know she had a big anger issue and threatened to fight me a few times. She did say she isn't someone to mess with nor anyone in her life that she loves because she'll make me or anyone pay. 
the system can be a scary and uncertain place for anyone, but perhaps even more so for a teen. According to NCSL.org, in the United States alone, nearly a quarter of the approximately 442,995 children in foster care are age 14 or older. These older children are often bounced from foster family to foster family to group home and then repeat, never really knowing what it's like to have a family to truly call their own. This seems to be the case with Sabrina. After being taken from her parents, then her grandparents, she bounced around for a while before she ended up at the Cayley home, which according to LakeCountyOhio.gov, is a group home licensed by the state to provide temporary care to children between the ages of 7 and 18. The Emma Cayley Receiving Home has been providing what they describe as a trauma-informed structured behavior modification program for the children of Ohio since 1948. Court documents state that Sabrina was placed in the Cayley home in the summer of 2010. Despite the programs that the group home offered, Sabrina's behavior appears to have gotten worse. Later court testimony revealed that while at the Cayley house, Sabrina was suffering from both psychological and substance abuse issues. Sabrina had displayed mental health issues from the very young age of six. And again, while at the home, she acted out according to her social worker, mostly by lying and being manipulative. Mental health professionals prescribed several different medications to help Sabrina manage her symptoms. At one point, for a period of about a month at the Cayley home, Sabrina reported that she was hearing voices. This was determined to be a side effect of the medications she was taking at the time. Her life seemed to be spiraling. Sabrina was unhappy at the home and, like every other child, wanted nothing more than to have a family of her own. She was at the Cayley home for roughly a year before that wish became a reality and the Knafels took her in. Sabrina, who had practically been abandoned by her biological family, finally had a place to call home and people to call family. And the Knafels, especially Lisa, were seasoned foster parents it couldn't have been a more ideal situation. But it didn't come without its challenges. According to court documents, when Sabrina was placed in the Knafel's home, she was prescribed nine different medications for bipolar disorder, ADHD, insomnia, and major mood swings, which was completely understandable considering everything that she had been through. The Knafels were committed to helping this young girl navigate her mental health issues and the everyday struggles that come with being a teen. And with the level of care in the Knafel home, Sabrina thrived. She quickly bonded with her foster parents and new siblings. Sabrina later recalled that when it came to her new siblings, Megan, who was 12 when Sabrina joined the family, and little Haley, who was two, they started out as friends, but soon were just as close as biological sisters. According to Dateline, the family took vacations together, ate family dinners, and Sabrina seemed to seamlessly blend right in. Lisa gushed to her friends about her new foster daughter and how much she was progressing. Sabrina had been transferred to a new school and her grades and behavior had improved drastically. Assistant Principal Dave Miller at Willoughby South spoke to the Cleveland scene and stated, 
She was never in trouble, not once. She was never even tardy. Hey, y'all. Are you looking for a new podcast to binge? I mean, of course you are. Aren't we all? Let me tell you all about a podcast I love called Crime Salad. It's a weekly true crime podcast hosted by part-time investigators and husband and wife duo, Ricky and Ashley. Join Ashley and Ricky every Wednesday as they take you through sudden disappearances, mysterious deaths, and unsuspecting massacres while bringing attention to current cases or cases you might not have heard of like the case of Heather Elvis, who vanished in 2013 after receiving a phone call from a much older man she was involved with. Heather drove to a remote location near his home and was never heard from again. Or the case of Elisa Mathewson, who after 16 years in an abusive and controlling marriage decided to leave. As Elisa began her new life, her soon-to-be ex-husband Trevor manipulated his own children and gained access to Elisa's new home. After Elisa escaped a second time, Trevor attempted to exert control of her once again at his trial, insisting on cross-examining her in court. But Elisa stood her ground and bravely took her power back on the witness stand. Listen to these stories and so many more on the podcast Crime Salad. With over a hundred episodes and counting, there's plenty to binge. Just search Crime Salad on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now and hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on an episode. Life for Sabrina at the Knafel home was good, but slowly things started to change. In 2012, roughly a year after Sabrina had joined the family, attention started to build. According to court testimony, Sabrina felt as if she was treated differently than Lisa's oldest biological daughter, Megan. That, coupled with the fact that Lisa felt Sabrina was trying to be a mother to her youngest daughter, Haley, who was only three at this point, led to frequent arguments between Sabrina and Lisa. In one incident, Sabrina filed a police report after Lisa physically restrained her during one of these instances. In the beginning, Lisa likely chalked much of their issues up to Sabrina's unstable upbringing and perhaps a little bit of teenage angst. Not to mention the fact that according to the Cleveland scene, Sabrina's biological father, Mark, also died in 2012. Neighbors reported to the outlet that it was due to a drug overdose. This was a lot for a teenager to take in. And soon, the tension in the home began to spill over into Lisa and Kevin's marriage. On September 15, 2012, according to court documents, officers responded to the home on Chagrin Drive after they received a call from Kevin Knafel. Kevin told officers that he and Lisa had an argument regarding Lisa's 13-year-old daughter, Megan, after Kevin claimed he grabbed her by the back of the neck and walked her to her room. He went on to say that Lisa had accused him of choking her, they had argued, and she had then left the residence with Megan. 
Although the dispute was over and Lisa was no longer at the home, Kevin told the officer that he wanted the incident documented because it could lead to divorce and affect his custody of the daughter they shared together. Divorce and custody? How in the hell had things gotten to this point in such a short amount of time? Everyone who knew Lisa and Kevin reported that they were happy in their marriage. What was happening? It seemed there were a million and one factors contributing to the issues, but the Knafels still wanted Sabrina to have the family she always wanted and a chance to complete her education. And it seemed Sabrina wanted that chance too, because just before she turned 18 in October of 2012 and aged out of the foster care system, she petitioned to remain in the Knafel home to finish high school. According to court documents, the day before Sabrina's 18th birthday, her social worker with the Lake County Job and Family Services conducted a home visit. During this visit, the social worker found nothing to be concerned about in regard to Sabrina, reporting that she was doing well in school, attending counseling, and passing her drug screens. So her petition was granted. But Sabrina Zunich would never walk across a stage at Willoughby South High to receive her diploma. Because just three weeks later, a frantic 911 call would be made from the Knafel home that shocked everyone. Three weeks after that home visit by child welfare officials, at 1.15 on the morning of November 16, 2012, 13-year-old Megan placed a call to 911 pleading for the dispatcher to send help. She said, My sister is stabbing my mother to death. Oh my God, my mom's gonna die. Megan struggled to get the words out in between her screams as she watched her foster sister Sabrina repeatedly stab their mother. She tried to intervene, but Sabrina pushed her away and continued to stab Lisa as Lisa fought for her life and Megan pleaded with Sabrina to stop. At one point in the call, Lisa can be overheard in the background yelling, Help, call 911. Megan told the dispatcher several times that she had just woken up and walked into her mother's bedroom to find her sister attacking her mother. She didn't know what had led to the violent attack. According to court testimony, patrolman Randy Mullinax of the Willoughby Hills Police Department was dispatched to 2518 Chagrin Drive in reference to an assault in progress just moments after the 911 call was placed. When the officer arrived, Megan ran out the front door and met him in the driveway and told him to hurry up because her sister was stabbing her mother to death. He rushed inside and made his way down the hallway. Officer Molinax ordered Sabrina, who was still in the master bedroom, to come out with her hands raised. Sabrina emerged from the room, sobbing, covered in blood from head to toe, the knife still in her hand. He then told her to drop the knife and she complied. The knife was kicked away from her and she was taken into custody. Officers located Lisa's three-year-old daughter cowering in the closet of her mother's bedroom. Little Haley had heard the entire attack, her mother's screams and her sister's pleas for help. Officers would later recall that the scene was one of the most heartbreaking and horrific they had ever witnessed. Paramedics had also arrived and attempted life-saving measures on Lisa Knafel. 
but they were unable to even insert an IV because Lisa had lost so much blood as a result of the attack that her veins had collapsed. There was nothing they could do. The 41-year-old mother was pronounced deceased. Sabrina Zunich was also treated for injuries she sustained as Lisa had fought back. She had minor lacerations on her hands, the back of her neck, and her legs above the knees. When officers first brought her over to the paramedics to get checked out, Sabrina was reportedly hyperventilating. The first responders asked several questions, but Sabrina didn't respond. En route to the hospital, she actually dozed off and fell asleep. As officers continued to process the scene, the brutality of what had happened was glaringly obvious. A 15-inch bread knife with a 9-inch blade was recovered. Sabrina had stabbed Lisa with such force that the stainless steel serrated blade was bent at a 20-degree angle. The bedroom was covered in blood and signs of a struggle were evident in every direction police looked. Lisa's husband, Kevin, was notified by officials. As it turned out, he was away from the home that night driving his truck for Gordon Foods near the Michigan-Ohio border. He had left the family home at around 8 p.m. the night before. Of course, when he got the call, he headed back to Ohio and arrived at the police station where 13-year-old Megan and 3-year-old Haley had been taken. According to court documents, he showed up around 5 a.m. An autopsy was conducted at the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office. Pathologist Dr. Joseph Filo would later testify that Lisa Knafel had been stabbed and slashed all over her body. There were at least 178 wounds in total. 178. 62 of those wounds were to Lisa's head and neck. She had suffered not one but two lethal injuries, one on her lower mandible or jaw area that was deep enough that her carotid artery had been severed, and the other, a stab wound to her breast that penetrated through and collapsed the lung underneath. Further, the pathologist described several of the cuts as complex. He explained that this indicated that when the knife had entered the body, either the knife was then twisted or the body was twisting as it was being stabbed. Lisa also had numerous defensive injuries on both her hands and legs. One of her thumbs and a finger had almost been completely severed. Lisa Knafel had put up one hell of a fight. While there was no question as to who was responsible, everyone wanted to know why. Just weeks earlier, Sabrina was petitioning to stay with the Knafels. How had things spiraled this far out of control in just three short weeks? According to the Cleveland scene, after Lisa's death hit the news, one of Sabrina's good friends posted on Facebook that Sabrina told her she was going to kill her foster mother weeks earlier. But the friend didn't think she would seriously go through with it, so she had reported it to no one. Had Sabrina been plotting to kill her foster mother while petitioning the state to remain in her home? It just didn't make any sense. Investigators turned to Sabrina for answers. Ten hours after the murder, Sabrina Zunich was released from the hospital straight into police custody. 
she was interviewed by detectives at the Willoughby Hills Police Department, still wearing a hospital gown, her hands bandaged from the night before. Detective Parmador asked what she recalled from the day of the murder. Sabrina responded, Getting done with my homework, then I don't know and that's it, then going to bed. The investigators tried to push further, but Sabrina continued to claim that she had no recollection of anything other than doing her homework and going to bed. So they changed up their strategy and started asking Sabrina about her relationships with her foster family. About her foster father, she said, Kevin and me are cool. I mean, he's more the one that helps me out because Lisa has Megan to deal with. And so we made agreements a long time ago that if I needed anything, I can go to Kevin. When asked about Lisa, Sabrina replied, Me and Lisa have never been the best. She never seemed to like me, and she's been wanting me out of the house. The detective then asked, What's your thoughts on how Lisa's not alive now? Sabrina appeared to be shocked like she was learning for the first time that Lisa was dead. And again, when the investigators told her that she was the one who had stabbed Lisa to death, Sabrina responded, That can't be true. Lisa's really dead? I don't believe this. Eventually, Sabrina recalled that on the night of the murder, she had a migraine and that she went to get ibuprofen from the master bathroom. But then, her memory went blank yet again. The interview ended abruptly when Sabrina asked for an attorney. But it wasn't like it was going anywhere anyway. And with that, the girl was escorted to her new jail cell. Initially to investigators, it looked like a pretty straightforward case. It seemed Sabrina was jealous of the relationship Lisa had with her own daughters and felt like an outcast. So perhaps she struck out in a fit of rage. But as the investigation continued, it seemed there was a whole lot more to the story. Six months after the murder, Sabrina agreed to talk to prosecutors in what is known as a proffer, which according to EG attorneys is a written contract between a federal prosecutor and the defendant or someone under criminal investigation. The defendant agrees to give the prosecutor helpful information, and in exchange, their statements won't be used against them later in a criminal proceeding. It's often a good faith step prior to a plea deal being reached. Were prosecutors planning to offer a plea deal? Why would they ever offer Sabrina Zunich a plea? She had literally been caught with the smoking gun, or in this case, the bloodstained knife in her hand. As it turned out, investigators were definitely onto something. And it was evident with the first question asked in that proffer. The prosecutor stated, What we believe from conversations is that what led up to this homicide, to this murder, is that there was another party involved in planning that. Yes, Sabrina replied. With that one word, everything investigators thought they knew about the motive behind Lisa's murder changed. Sabrina claimed she didn't act alone, so who had helped her? Unfortunately, that will have to wait until next week because we're running out of time 
And there is so much more to this story. Join me next Thursday, same time, same place, for the conclusion of Lisa's case. In the meantime, don't forget to check out Crime Salad Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Before we go, I'd also like to give a shout out to Doug Brown, former staff writer for the Cleveland Scene, for his excellent coverage of this case. In addition to being a journalist, Doug is also a published photographer and digital art designer. You can find his incredible work at DougBrownMedia.com. As always, you can find more information on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.